Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are beginning the book of Leviticus this morning. We finished the last parsha of the book of Exodus last week. And uh, for those of you who will recall... Uh, if not, then it's new information for you, uh, that the narrative of the Jewish people begins in Genesis as a family story, the family of our ancestors, uh, and then in Exodus becomes the national story, right? becomes the formation of the people Israel. Then in Numbers, we get the traveling through the desert. Uh, in Deuteronomy, we're going to get a recap of everything that happened in Moses' uh, farewell address to the people. Uh, and then at the end of Devarim, they are about to cross over into the Promised Land. Inserted in the narrative, inserted between Exodus and Numbers, is the book of Leviticus. Part of the book of Leviticus seems to be clearly a manual for the priests. Part of the book of Leviticus seems to be a manual for the people about the things that they need to do to stay in right relationship uh, with the divine. Um, it is very clear that uh, we are dealing with a priesthood that understood itself to be responsible to the people. So in the ancient Near East, often the priest, what the priest did was secret. So people didn't have access to the texts. People didn't know how to read. They weren't given access to the sacred material that the priests would have had as their manual. Let's say there was a priest manual for the Canaanites or the Edomites, right? The people, the Edomite people would not have had access to those texts. You brought your offering to the priest uh, in all of the ancient Near Eastern cultures. You brought your offering to the priest. The priest took the offering and took it into the sacred precinct of the god or the goddess that was involved um, there was a low bench that ran around the inside of the sacred space, and offerings would be placed on that bench. There was also an altar for uh, animal sacrifice to the gods. So we are not looking at a completely different system here in terms of what happened. The Israelites brought their offerings to the priests. The priests took those offerings into the sacred space. So it's very similar to what happened elsewhere in the ancient Near East. The people could not go inside the sacred space. They could not go inside the Mishkan, inside the tabernacle. Only Levites and priests could be in the sacred precinct, and only priests could go inside the actual tents, right? the actual structure of the Mishkan. The Levites were allowed past the fence that went around, and they were in the courtyard and helping to facilitate sacrifice and all those kinds of things. But only the priests could go inside the Mishkan. So so the people didn't even see the Levites in their service, right? Because there was a fence all the way around the Mishkan that was high. And no one saw inside the Mishkan itself except the priests. So in that sense, it's very similar to other ancient Near Eastern um, cultic practices the difference being that the Israelites presumably are told what's happening in the sacred space. And later, of course, even if we say the Mishkan is an imagination, that it wasn't for real, later in the temple we know that these things happened. We know the incense were offered, the 
sacrifices were offered, that we know. Um, exactly how many sacrifices, all that, we don't know. Uh, some people want to say that there's no way, no way that this system could have been possible. There's no way that there would have been enough animals to satisfy the call of Leviticus for how often a bull needs to be brought, a goat needs to be brought. There's just, there's too many animals involved, certainly for any kind of desert experience to have supplied enough animals for that. Um, but even within, you know, early Israel, that's in the temple, the first temple, like that, that this is just too huge a number of animals to be believed in terms of it being an actual system. So there's scholarly arguments uh, about whether or not Leviticus contains the real schedule of sacrifices or not. And I will let you read that literature and decide for yourselves. Um, For us, it doesn't, in in my estimation, it doesn't really matter. Clearly it was important to the people of Israel to keep telling the fact, to keep saying that they brought a bull, right? That, you know, that they brought a goat, that they brought a bull, that they brought a lamb, that they brought a dove, that they brought, like, it was important to them. Um, and the rabbis stayed very attached to these uh, rituals and recounting these rituals because once the temple's destroyed, they have no way. First of all, when the temple was standing and they were not in Israel, it was their way of connection to the temple. But once the temple's destroyed, then it really becomes... Um, important for the rabbis because they don't they don't have any tension around you know we're in Babylonia and we're having a good time in Babylonia and we really don't want to go back to Israel this is um right after the destruction of the first temple 50 years later they're allowed to go back and rebuild and a lot of them didn't want to but there's a tension there right that they that's what the whole Purim story is about right they they should be going back but they don't right so then there's kind of right we, should we be building the, whatever? Um, but once the temple's destroyed, there's no more equivocation. There's no more tension. Now, the rabbis can fully live into how wonderful it was when the temple stood and how wonderful were the sacrifices and how, right? Because they don't have to worry about it. It's gone. Does that make sense? Right? There, it, it's, it's uncomplicated once the temple's destroyed and they can yearn and long for the good old days of, of, the sacrificial system. But then don't we have to ask the question, why is it so important and why have these stories been retained when we know they could not have happened because there weren't enough animals to fulfill? They've got to have another meaning that is very important. So I think... You, you set the standards high for people and they will only do a tiny bit of it. <laughs> so people will only obey you know, in few uh, numbers of laws and so that, so that this was the, this was the goal, but understanding that there's no way. Give, give them only two, two laws and they will not provide any laws. Right, but give them 37 and they might do two and a half. Well, that's very Jewish. Right, that's, that's what we do. That's what we do. And then also you can transfer the meaning of sacrifice a different direction. Yes. Again, you said last year, last week, how long were these temple activities? It was a very short time from the building to the first one. So how many years was it when we had the temple? I, I don't know. A hundred years is the time that there is ancient Israel. The north and the south united is a hundred years. Right, so it's a, it's a very short time. I don't know, I mean... 
I don't know the actual dates from after the destruction of the first temple, how long till they were rebuilding. I mean, they started rebuilding right away, but not really. It didn't. It, it became a bu- big building project later. Um, but w- w- when that started, I don't know. Um, but it's destroyed in seventy, right? The the first temple, the second yeah. temple is destroyed in seventy. Because yeah, my understanding of Leviticus was not written until after the uh, return. Of the Babylonian uh, that would mean that you have a late P. Right, late P. You're a late P supporter. <laughs> All right, so. And, uh, so, so if that were true, that would be that now we're to have a new temple, and now you have to tell the people, remind them how it came to be, of what's going on because they have forgotten, presumably. All right, so remember we have sources, right? We have sources too contribute to what the final redacting gives us as the Torah. Amy, yeah? Do you mind using a dark pen? It's very hard to read that on a whiteboard. Better. It looks a bit like Christmas up here now. Mm-hmm. Um, J, E, P, and D are our sources. Now you can't read anything. No, it's fine. That's better. That's better. Yeah, just thanks, Sheldon. Rabbi, if you just stop talking, we won't have to worry about it. Um, So J, E, P, and D are our sources that give us, when they're compiled together, give us the Torah. Yeah? So J is the Yahwist, who uses the name uh, Yahweh for God, or Yudhe uh, e is the Elohist, who uses Elohim for God. P is the priestly source. This is the priestly writer. And D is the Deuteronomist. All right. So what Sheldon is saying is, well, we know, Rabbi, don't we, that P is writing after the Babylonian exile, after the return. So you have to figure out when to date P. So there's arguments about is P early or is P late? So if P is early, these are actual manuals written for the actual practice, right? During the time of. Uh, During the time of or preceding, right, some of it. If you accept a late P, then this is a memory of what happened in order to make sure that the people or that or that the system right remembers after a disruption in that service. So what are the differences between early and late I will say they glorify things memories. <laughs> mm-hmm. So 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 what you're saying Mehmed is pointing out if you have a an early P, what's the agenda of an early P and how is that reflected in the material? If you have a late P, what is the agenda and how is that reflected in the material? Um, so there's lots of discussion, um, which I can go into at some point um, about that. Uh, I, I like to favor an early P because I want it to be real and I want it to be a memory and I want, right? <laughs> so I, I want an early P. <coughs> Uh, but I am perfectly willing to accept that it's likely a late P. <laughs> I can live with it. Um, but, and then arguments on both sides are very convincing. Um, okay, so we have, so this is P. This is material from P. Whenever you see this one begat that one, begat that one, begat that one, that's P. 
he is very concerned with making sure that everybody's connected back to, right, so lineage is very important to P. And so we'll get in the priestly source often um, a genealogy. And you'll see a genealogy in Genesis. Lots of places in Genesis. So because P, even if P is early or P is late, it doesn't matter. This is late. The whole collection is late. The whole collection is very late. Very late. So... So whoever's redacting, like P got a hold of this material before D, if, if you <laughs> want to go that right. And, uh, and so P goes back and inserts genealogies in, in Genesis and in Ex- you know, when You'll see priestly material in Genesis and in Exodus. Right? So that, that material gets inserted there. Amy, wouldn't it make sense uh, that it would be early in the sense that most societies want to establish rules of behavior rather early on, as opposed to reflecting on it? I mean, it just sort of seems that as they collect, as if you go through um, Exodus and you start becoming a, a nation, this would be the first order of business, you know, that you start establishing how you behave under certain circumstances. Right, so the, so, the, so the question is, when does that happen? Right, the question is, when when does the formation of the people into a nation happen <clears throat> to the extent that you now need a national story and a manual? It, it would seem, it wouldn't seem that it would happen around the time of Genesis, but more logically... Okay, but we have to remember Genesis never happened. I'm not, not Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus. Exodus never happened. Yeah. Well, right. It didn't happen. So, so are we asking at the writing of Exodus? Where are we talking about in the people's history? It never happened. The conquest never happened. So, if it didn't happen, then it's because it's easy to place it there if it happened, but it didn't. We emerged from Canaanites. So, at what point in our emergence as a nation does this get written? That's a conversation that's in the literature, right? So, some people want to say it begins with David. That David, who's bringing together the North and the South, conquers the Philistines, right? Establishes national borders. That it's David who first commissions J and E to be combined into a national story. But isn't the writing irrelevant? It's more, when were the rules established? The moralization of the rules could happen later on without any issue, you know? Well, but who built the temple? Who built the temple? <gasps> Solomon. Solomon, thank you. David's son builds the temple. There is no sacrifice before <laughs> then for the priesthood that we know of. It's David's son who builds the first temple. Are they sacrificing in their backyards before then? Possibly. Probably. At local altars, right? So so centralization of worship is what some of this is about. The the idea is we're going to centralize worship in Jerusalem. We're going to use Leviticus to do that. Yeah. To to make a central shrine, a central altar. Before then, they probably worshipped at... We know. We know that from looking at other texts where we see the instinct is to offer a sacrifice. Right? Not to go to the temple. Like, right? Noah gets off the boat, and what's the first thing Noah does? (coughs) Offers a sacrifice. Right? Jacob, right? Builds an altar. 
at Bethel. So it seems that early practice was to have local shrines and local altars, but then there is a push to centralize worship in Jerusalem. Well, it was not written um, from scratch. Correct. Is my understanding. Correct. There were stories for gosh knows how long, and who knows how complicated, and whether they were transformed or whatever. But there were a lot of there was a lot of oral passed down, right? And at some point, then not only was there picking and choosing, but there could have been editing and changing. And, of course, there were. For sure. Uh, and isn't that you know, the story of every culture? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. A- every oral culture that becomes a written tradition, yes. He is also a reflection of a hierarchical structure prior to a democratization of the uh, religion. Correct. There was never a democratization of the religion while the temple stood. Not while the temple, right. right. So this, if it's a late view, it's a reflection back to the hierarchical structure as is lineage and a reflection back to Yes. So it was hierarchical, for sure. Um, The democratization is that the people knew, presumably, what the priests were supposed to be doing. So that's the democratization. What's the other democratization? They could go into the temple. They could not go into the temple. No, no. I mean, while it stood. As soon as they can go into the temple, that's the first step to democratization. Uh, No. So Sinai, for sure. The theophany at Sinai is the democratization of revelation. In other cultures, the revelation, the theophany is given to the leadership, the prophet, or a select group, because it's hierarchical. We are are the first time that we know of in the ancient Near East where the theophany, where the God's revelation is democratized. Everybody is present for the revelation at Sinai. Everybody. They're the ones who say stop talking to God because they're Jews, right? Um, but, But everybody, even women, even women, right? So, um, that's unheard of. That's unprecedented in the ancient world, that the revelation is to the entire people. So that's the first place we see it. Um, but certainly there is a hierarchy. Uh, but I, I think one of the things that ancient Israel understood is that the priests didn't outrank anybody. The priests took on the danger of mitigating the divine force on behalf of the people. The Levites took upon the dan- on themselves the danger of encroachment, right? If there was encroachment on the sancta, it was the Levites who were in trouble. So it wasn't understood that they were s- special in that they were better than or outranked Israelites. It's that they were the ones stuck with the honor of risking their lives to maintain the relationship between the divine and the people. Yeah? <coughs> but I'm confused. Okay. Then I've done my job. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought you said that this, well, the sancta, whatever it was, probably didn't ex- really exist. The temple did. 
The temple did. Okay. Yes. Okay. Once the temple was built. Okay. Not in the not yes. In the desert. Um, but it, but in our in our story of Leviticus, like let's talk about the story of the Mishkan, the story of the tabernacle. If he, what I heard was so, if that's P's material, that's a reflection on hierarchy. So all I'm trying to suggest is yes and no. It's complicated. The priests weren't the Levites weren't elected to be higher than the Israelites. They were put in more danger than regular Israelites. They took upon themselves, well, God assigned them the danger of mitigating right, the relationship between God and Israel. So if there was encroachment on the sancta, the Levites paid the price. If something went wrong in the nuclear center, it's the Levites who got obliterated. What exactly was that danger? How did they, did they die? Yes, that was, it was understood that if, that if, if you don't handle that nuclear energy right, you die. I mean, through God or through other ways? Well, it depends on what the encroachment is. Well, but that, like the Levites are supposed to kill anybody who encroaches, who tries to encroach. So then it's through their hand. But if you touch the, the ark or something, you, you, you get gone. But but we didn't invent that fear. I mean, that fear no. was 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 around uh, with respect to God's plural um, forever. Right, and it's not only do we not invent it; it's true. <clears throat> when you when you come close to touching reality, capital R, it's dangerous. <clears throat> it's super dangerous. You've you ever been at a birth? You ever been at a death? It you're touching stuff that's super charged, right? It's I don't I think our imagination has a way of expressing that as fear and of this you know exploding energy, um, but I think it's it's not separate from reality. Like it's it's real. <laughs> like you the call it awe, but it's dangerous. Yeah, the mystery, capital M, at the heart of reality is dangerous. Because we're changed. Something's going to happen to us when we really confront that or touch it. Something's going to change. So is it possible that the Israelites chose not to go near the Mishkan as opposed to the priests keeping them out? We don't know. We don't know if the Mishkan existed. We don't, you know. But well, what we're told is a normal practice mm-hmm. in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, would have been you don't encroach on the sancta as a regular person. That the clergy handles that, and you don't, and you don't want to. You don't want it. That's the other thing we forget. We talk about democratization like it's a good thing. There are some days I would love it not to be democratic. I would love for somebody to take it on for me. I would love to go confess to somebody and have them say, you are forgiven, it's done, do this, do that, and it's all good. I would love that. I yearn for that. I long for that. In the ancient world, I don't think most people wanted to deal with the sancta. They're like, good, here's my goat, make this good, make this right, we're going to roast it later, and I'm out of here. Right? The the goat's going to die, and I get off. I get off scot-free in that I mean I have to give the goat but but and that's what this sacrificial system is about is I give the goat so that I don't have to die because I deserve to be punished but I'm going to give something else over in my place 
right? The victim of the, the victim for sacrifice takes my place. I, I, I would love that. Also, describing as you just did uh, the, the tendency toward dictatorial, we hope benevolent dictators, but the hierarchy has a political and human nature component. Yes. Power seeking. Yes. And in the ancient world, it was normative. Right? I mean, it was completely normative. It's coming back. And it's reminiscent of what's happening in Israel right now with the Orthodox taking on the secular. Forget Israel! Forget Israel! You don't have to look that far. Look at Washington, D.C. Especially. You want to see what he's talking about? Turn on CNN! People want, when, they're, when they feel lost, when they feel out of control, when they feel disempowered, when they feel they've been left behind, people want a totalitarian leader. Tell me what they want know. someone to tell them what to do and how they're going to fix it, how they're going to make it better, and I don't want to have to think about it. I just want to know you're taking care of it. And, I mean, it's, it's absolutely human nature. Absolutely. Democracy is super hard. And, and right now, and I'm not even just talking about this administration, right now, we're not doing it very well, democracy. Because democracy requires being a grown-up and really being able to talk to each other and really being able to hear the other side and really being able to compromise and give up, sometimes painfully give up, what we want in order to reach a compromise where more people are happier and better off than they are now. And we are not doing that. We are not, we can't even have a conversation about some things like gun control. We can't even have a conversation in this country about that. Right? We don't want to really do democracy. We want our freedom, but we don't really want to do the incredibly hard work of being responsible for this democracy, right? We don't vote. I mean, if you look at our voting record, it's pathetic. Pathetic. Um, now look, is it better than Putin's going to get reelected because they're not a donor choice? Yes, I mean, I think, okay, at least our elections aren't a total sham um, when they're not being run by Russia. But, um, <laughs> but, our, but we don't vote. <laughs> Why we don't? There are a lot of roadblocks that have been put in the hundred percent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why do we vote on Tuesdays? <laughs> right, when people have Sorry. to work and yeah. poor, poorer people often have jobs where they can't yeah. necessarily get out in time to vote. So, and so we put up roadblocks for people to vote so that certain people get to stay in power. Right, cause, cause as much as we celebrate democracy, there's a, there's a push back against really giving the people Right. The power, right? Not those, Not those people. Yeah. Exactly. Right. When we said all people were created equal, we didn't exactly mean none. But I was just at, um, at, when I was in Israel last, you know, we had this presentation by this, I forget who it was even, and, you know, he said, like, careful what you ask for when you talk about you want democracy in the Middle East. Be very careful what you ask for. Because if you have democracy in the Middle East, then the people get to decide their leaders. Who did they elect in Gaza? Yeah. Hamas. 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 Yeah. So that's democracy. Them? Okay, you want them? democracy? Then guess what? Hamas yeah. was elected democratically, overwhelmingly. So, like, be fair. Like, what do we mean when we say? It? Really, do we mean we want democracy? Like, absolute democracy? Really? They said the same thing in Egypt. 
Yes, right? Okay. Well, it depends on whom the Saudis pay for. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it's, right, to influence the election, right? So, but we're getting a little off topic. Yeah, back to the topic. Levites are only Levites by lineage, right? Yes. <clears throat> I, I was looking at the fact that they are, they don't, cons- they're not considered hierarchy or special. They take the burden. And I was looking at how we interpret chosen people now. We're not, we, we look at it not as chosen to be better, but as chosen to have a responsibility. That, it seems to me, a direct correlation. Yes. And that. Yes, it is. So people who, who are okay with that word and want to reconstruct that word say, it chosen doesn't mean better. Chosen means we're chosen for this craziness. Other peoples are chosen for their special relationship with God. We're the only ones chosen for this nonsense, right? That, to do um, work. Well, to do this work. Yes. Every people has their work. This is, nobody else cares about eating shellfish. Who cares? Like, you know, so this is our special way, and this is what we're, this is the way we're chosen to be in relationship with God through this particular covenant. Every people has its covenant with the divine. And we are also Jews by lineage unless we convert. It's very relatable to me. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, this is where it originates. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but reconstruction, early reconstructionists could not abide the reconstructing of that term. And many mm-hmm. Jews still can't. I can't. I won't say it. I won't use it. The chosen. I won't use it. So um, I agree with Kaplan. Mm-hmm. Not so much because I can't reconstruct it. I could probably reconstruct it. But I don't want anybody coming into my synagogue who's not Jewish and seeing that in my prayer book. Who chose us from among all other people. We cannot have it because if we don't believe that, Kaplan said we should say, you know, mean what we say and say what we mean. And for other people to come in and see us say that, I agree, is let's let's get rid of it. Let's change it. So we don't have Asher Bachar Banu Mikoha Amim in our prayer book and we don't say it when we come to Torah to be called for an Aliyah. Instead of Asher Bachar Banu Mikoha Amim, who chose us from among all other peoples, we say Asher Kervanu La'avodato, who has drawn us near to your service <clears throat> and given us the Torah. Not and chose us from among all people and gave us the Torah. Um, so whenever we call at Bar Bat Mitzvah time, we call people up for an Aliyah to Torah, I have two pieces of paper there and I say, do you want traditional or reconstructionist? The blessing. Because here we say the Reconstructionist version, but we understand other people have a different practice, and so we make the traditional available. All right, let's let's look at the Torah, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Chapter three, verse one. Well, I know <laughs> within your half an hour. But we learned so much. <laughs> all around. That's the all right. We're we're not we're not going to yes. stay too long with text. Um, so chapter 3, verse 1, we're in the, remember, the second triennial reading, so we're not reading the first hunk of the first portion of the book, and we're not reading the last hunk. We're reading the middle chunk of every portion. I like that you use the technical terms. Yes, I know. I know. I want to educate, you know, I want all of you to use proper terminology. All right, Robert, you want to uh, read sure. 3? If your offering is a sacrifice of well-being, if you offer of the herd whether a, a male or a female, you should bring before Adonai one without blemish. You shall lay a hand upon the head of your offering and slaughter it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall dash the blood against all sides of the altar. 
then present from the sacrifice of well-being as an offering by fire to Adonai, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is about the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, that is at the loins and the protuberance of the liver, which you shall remove from the kidneys. Aaron's son shall turn these into smoke on the altar with a burnt offering, which is upon the wood that is upon the fire, as an offering by fire of pleasing odor to Adonai. Okay, so we're getting description of different kinds of sacrifices. We are now uh, at chapter 3, dealing with the Shlamim sacrifice. Here it's called, what is it, what is your translation? Well-being. Well-being, okay. Um, The term I prefer is uh, the sacrifice of greeting. So this is, Shlamim is, you're saying shalom to God. It is a greeting. You're coming into the divine presence with a gift. Right? So, um, but it is given out of a sense of, shal- out of being shalem, out of being whole, out of being full, out of being, it comes out of a good thing. Right? So this sacrifice is a gift that's given out of your sense of gratitude or something good has <laughs> happened or your fields were really great this harvest or your son just got into medical school whatever it is your daughter is going to be an astronaut so um, you bring a shlamim um, at that time uh, so the so we're getting the uh, before this we got the description of the holocaust and of the sin offering and here we have the shlamim so the shlamim uh, is like many sacrifices there's a part so some sacrifices are a holocaust. So they are they are completely consumed, the whole thing. Other sacrifices are uh, partly given to God and then partly given to the person bringing the sacrifice and to the priesthood, right? So it's a it's a meal. You're having a meal with God. That's the point. So what does God want from all this? What does God get from the sacrifice? God gets the fat because it makes reach michoach it makes a pleasing odor so what God gets even the ancient Israelites did not believe anymore that this was feeding God right that you used to feed the gods the gods needed to eat and drink so you had a libation offering and you brought your food gifts to the priest they would take it into the sancta put it on the bench before the god and the gods would eat Right of the gifts of the person. Ancient Israel did not believe that God needed to eat. They, they that that they've evolved they they evolved from that idea to the idea that what God really wants is the smell. So what you're giving God is the smoke. And I don't know about y'all, but I can smell a barbecue <laughs> from. 10 miles away and I'll find it right um, it, for those of us who eat meat and like it um, there is no smell like fat burning on a fire no smell like that I'm glad you came um, so uh, she, she has to leave early but I love it when people say I have to leave but I wanted to be here for as much as I could be here for I love that love that uh, so uh, that's a yummy smell so that's what's being offered to God Right? The other thing that has to get dealt with are the organs. Right? We have to burn those. Why? Because you don't want to read. No reading. No. 
divination. Divination sorcery. No divination for Israelites. So to be sure there's no divination, you take the divining things and you burn them up on the altar. So those are burned. And the other thing that's got to get dealt with is the... The blood. We have to deal with the blood. The blood is the life force. Israelites are not permitted to consume the life force of an animal. Why? <laughs> so we're going to kill. We're going to kill it, and we're going to eat it. If it's not kosher, God forbid. The ancient peoples would the leaders would consume the blood to get the strength. Aha! So why are Israelites forbidden from doing that? <laughs> Everyone's like, I can't <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. But most of these have nothing to do with health. Nothing to do with health. Because they were separate, they felt they were bit. So if you take if you are going to drink blood as drinking the life force, then presumably you would kill animals in order to consume their life force. And Torah seems to be suggesting, all right, in a perfect world, you wouldn't kill animals and eat them. Because in Eden, that didn't happen. It only happens after the flood that we're permitted to eat meat. So paradise, there is no killing of animals and eating them. But Torah gets it that this is the world we live in. It's trying to push us towards the world as it should be, but gets it that we are who we are. We're going to eat meat. Okay, well, guess what? You have to put limits on what you're allowed to eat. You can only eat certain animals. And at one point, you could only eat sacrificial meat. So, only kosher animals. You can't eat whatever you want. You're going to limit your appetite to what's permitted in terms of ritual, right? What's ritually pure and clean for you to eat what's permitted to you, what's taboo you may not touch. So you are only going to eat that and you're only going to eat it for its meat. You may not take life in order to drink its life. There was, it, Torah just seems to say there, there's a limit. <laughs> like to, okay, we don't love the killing of animals, but we're going to do it. But within reason, within limits, every single appetite Sex, food, everything. You're allowed to, you should, you should enjoy, it should be fantastic within limits. That's the milk and meat thing too, right. the yeah. lifeblood was of the there, baby. Was there um, some rules on like how well cooked the meat? No. No. You get around it if you want it. It's really rare. <laughs> they, so the, the blood was drained? Yes. Right? And dashed against the altar. The salt. Kosher meat now is Drained. salted salt. and soaked yeah. okay. to remove all the blood. Okay. Right? So, like, I love when they say kosher salt. Yeah. There's no salt that's not kosher. Right. But what's kosher salt? Like, you slaughter it the right way? Like, what? <laughs> what? Like, it's kosherizing salt. Yes. Chunky. Big chunks so that you sprinkle it on the meat. And it removes the blood. So that's how you kosher meat. It has to be slaughtered correctly, and then it must be soaked and salted. How do we work in the fact that 
it, um, Noah and the flood is pre-Judaic, and yet we don't have we start eating the meat after the flood. Because we are all Bnei Noach, we are all descendants of Noach. Okay. That's the earliest commandments humanity is given are the Noahide, what we call the Noahide laws, right? So traditional Judaism believes all of humanity is bound by those laws. We are too, but we, we're Jews, so we came up with like 600 more, um, right? Because <laughs> that's who we are. But, um, but we're all bound by the Noahide laws, so we are descendants of Noah. Um, but, that, but that has nothing to do with kashrut or anything like that. <laughs> the excavations at Tel Arad, that's one of these places, satellite places where they try to... Uh, duplicate the, the temple in Jerusalem so people wouldn't have to slip so far. On the sacrificial altar, there was a, a, a little, ch- there was a channel for the blood to... Right. Right? Because you, cause you couldn't keep it. Right? It had to go somewhere. And there's a lot of it. There's a lot of blood. When you slaughter an animal, there's a lot of blood. Which is kind of the point. Right? So sacrifice... Israelites didn't invent sacrifice. Sacrifice has been around forever because it is so bloody and messy and powerful. It's been a ritual for a really long time. You're talking about life and death, right? You're talking about killing something for a reason, right? The victim serves a purpose. That's an intense thing. It's alive one minute and the next minute it's dead because it's your victim. That's very intense. Um, and has been forever. It's very dramatic. It's very messy. It's very powerful. Um, and uh, I know a lot of people have, especially my 13-year-olds, when they get one of these partial for their bar and bat mitzvah speech. It's like, I've done this for 22 years. You know, I have the speech memorized. Um, but they're like, ew, sacrifice. Right? So... Um, yeah, ooh, sacrifice. Yeah, that's right. That's the power of it. Is it's brutal? It's messy. It's horrible. It's delicious, right? So we walk by the supermarket. Do you know how many dead animals are in Ralph's and Gelson's? Just walk by the meat aisle, and there are so many dead animals. In there, but we have sanitized them, right? We we don't have to do any confronting of any of the mess, any of the suffering, any of the blood. We don't have to deal with that. It's on white styrofoam, right? Just look at it. I mean, it's like so sterilized in terms of how it's presented to us. It's packaged so that we don't have to confront the fact that we killed an animal to eat it, right? And we throw it in our baskets, right? And I don't know about you, but I have left chicken that I fully intended to cook that night. Something happens, and then the next night I'm working, and then the ne- right, and what happens? I throw it out. That's unthinkable in the ancient world. Unthinkable that you would kill a chicken and not eat it, right? It just, it wouldn't happen. In my mother's <laughs> they were a lot. They were expensive. It's still unthinkable. It's, it's still unthinkable for a lot of people who are closer to understanding exactly 
what the death of that chicken means, Jonna. It just seems like it's the way our society has supported this mentality of we don't want to look, we don't want to see, get, get, get the dictator to make the decision for us. Yes. It's, it's, it's a very subtle but powerful way we're kind of, as a society, saying we don't want to know, let somebody else do it. And we don't want to take responsibility. Right? Do any of us know where our clothes are made? Right. Like when they say, you know, like sweatshop labor, how do you avoid sweatshop? Like, we don't know, and we don't demand to know. But no wonder we have, you know, nobody voting. Right? Well, I think they're the same. I, I don't know which is the cause. I mean, I think they're both stemming from the same right. root cause, which is we yes. don't actually want yeah. responsibility, right. right, for what we do, what we consume, our decisions. Fill in the fill in the blank. We don't want responsibility for, right? Fill in the blank. And sacrifice was about taking ultimate responsibility for that animal's life. And they watched. I mean, they they dealt with the blood. Right? They dealt with the mess. There's also a glory in the glory. Yes. And when he talks about spreading it all around, it is that glory. Yes. Yes. Amy, is there any commentary on why the blood is spread around the perimeter of the tent? Yes. So the, well, it was at the altar. Um, It's at the altar, and the blood is, we've talked about this, uh, blood is ritual detergent. Blood is the, the life force is the only thing that can cleanse the death force of sin. Sin is death in life. And so the life force is the only thing capable of washing away the effect of death, which is sin. And if, because if that's there, the divine presence cannot dwell in the, in the sanctuary. That's not like Christian theology. But the life force, the blood. I mean, of course. Of course. Yeah. Where did it come out of nowhere? Right. <laughs> right. Of course. The sacrifice, the lamb. Right. Of course. They're, they were Jews and pagans who were also sacrificed. Yeah. I'm not, it's not just Jewish. Everybody in the ancient world sacrificed. But of course, the blood of Jesus is the only thing. Words in yes. That's the only thing that can cleanse Right. Humanity of sin is the blood of Christ. Of course. It is very, very old and very Israelite. Israelites did not go there. They did not go there. They left sacrifice. Right? Christianity reconstructed it. Judaism did not. Judaism left it. What took sacrifice's place? Service. Prayer. Prayer takes the place of sacrifice. We offer our prayers on the altar of our hearts. Right? That is what becomes, that's why we have prayers three times a day, because that's how often sacrifices were offered in the temple, three times a day. Right? You get an extra one on Shabbos, so we have an extra service called Musaf, the additional service. On holidays and Shabbos, there's Musaf, an additional service, because there was an additional offering on those days. Yes. Well, you mentioned sacrifice of Shulamin, for example, and I was thinking of us singing Shulamin and you know. Forgiveness. Yes, absolutely. So there. So what we're offering are our longings, our hopes, our celebration. Our we're offering all of that t- to God in place of animals. 
Yes, yeah, some of them. Some of them were completely burned. Some of them, the the offering person took a big chunk of it home, and there wasn't a freezer to put it in. So you 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 had to eat it all. So you fed you fed everyone. So it was a big communal meal. It was a big celebration. Yes, given that the fat created smoke, which was aroma a pleasing aroma. I didn't know that Jews invented aromatherapy. <laughs> you know, they can't prepare you in rabbinical school for some things. And you never know when it's coming. I thought it was a legit comment over there. I have to tell you, Amy, I grew up in a town with a huge stockyard. That aroma was not pleasing. No, 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 um, no. Right. So we're we're talking about meat cooking. Right. That that uh, the meat cooking. And so the Levites had a really messy job. Think about it. They were around the stench. They were around the yucky part of of this whole procedure. Um, so what? And this goes on. Uh, in chapter 4 to talk about the expiatory sacrifices. So uh, everyone who has incurred guilt must bring an offering because, uh, as we said, the divine presence cannot rest where the dross of sin has been. And so when you incur, when you sin, what's not on purpose? When you sin unintentionally, you bring an offering, and it is assumed you have sinned unintentionally. When the priest incurs guilt, so it starts at the priesthood. <coughs> no infallibility here. The priest must bring a sin offering. So it is very made very clear, it's assumed the priest sins. The priest sins, everybody sins. We're Jews. Everybody sins. And there's a way to clean it up. We don't need the blood of a human sacrifice, right? We, the space is cleansed, and it's the space that is cleansed, not a person. Let's be very clear. Nothing happens to the person. The space is cleansed of sin so that the divine presence can rest there, okay? That was the understanding in ancient Israel. And um, the victim is substituted for me. So whatever's going to happen is going to happen to the victim, not to me. And there's a powerful thing about substitution there. It, it gets what I deserve. Okay? So those two things. That's the story of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. They reconstructed, they reconstructed this practice. Absolutely. All right. So um, we're going to look at the teachings uh, of Rabbi Alex Israel. <clears throat> he is way more conservative. He's uh, modern Orthodox. So there are points at which I diverge, right? We would diverge from Rabbi Israel. Um, but I think he has some really, um, he's, he has a nice way of talking about uh, some of this stuff that I wanted to put into your hands. 
Um, we're not going to go through all of it, obviously. Um, I want you to keep it, though. Like, stick it in your book of Leviticus. Or, uh, where, I mean, I think it's, a, it's an important teaching about the, about the sacrifices. So, first of all, we're going to look at, because we're going to be dealing with this for a while. Um, since we're starting, we're just starting the book of Leviticus. So, tell me, I know a lot of y'all know this already, but we have to do it. Tell me the Hebrew word for sacrifice. Korban. All right. So what is the shoresh? What's the root? Karov. Karov. Which means? Closeness. Which means close. Near. <coughs> so translate, without using the word sacrifice, translate korban for me. So it's the noun. Could be a relative. So korban is that which draws me near to God. I want us to not use the word sacrifice for like a month. It's not sacrifice. It's that which draws me near to God. On the floor, Amy. Oh, thank you. Um, all right, so look, I'm learning how not to freeze the rest of you out. Because <laughs> I'm dying. I'm just dying. Um, so how, how I draw near to God. Do you see how that's different than sacrifice? Because what happens, what do we think of when we think sacrifice? Uh, other than death. Losing. Yeah. Losing. Yeah. I, I give up something. And it's hard. Right? And, and I suffer a little bit. For that. That is not the idea of a korban. That is a modern idea and a word that triggers a whole host of associations that is not present in the idea of korban. A korban is a gift. Right? Judy gave me this bracelet for Valentine's Day. Right? Did it hurt for her to withdraw that money and go buy me this bracelet? Right? Yes, she gave up resources that she could have spent on something else, which fortunately she did not. Um, right? So, but when you, when you do that, when you give of your resources to someone you love, aren't you excited to give them a present? Yes. Yes. Aren't you excited that they're going to open this box and they're going to be so pleased? That is not, that's not suffering. No. Does it require my resources? Yes. But that's not the point. The point is not that I'm sacrificing of my resources. That is, that is not what happens when we give a gift to someone we love. We are happy to give it. We're excited about what it's going to mean when they open that. What it's going to do for us and our relationship. How we're going to feel. And we're going to feel really good if, if we're sincere about the gift, right? If we just pick something up because you have to bring something to someone's house, like, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a gift of love. A gift that's going to help you come closer to that person. That's why we give gifts, right? We give gifts so that we, I draw you closer to me. You're going to be happy with me, right? And, and you're going to love me more. And I love you more, right? So it's, that's why sacrifice doesn't work. As the, as the translation of korban. Korban is from the root karov to come close, to come near. We are offering a gift to the divine, hoping to draw nearer. 
to God and to making that relationship closer. So that's the thing on Karev, uh, drawing near to God, bottom left corner. It means approach. It means coming closer. Look to the upper right corner. This is from Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. The unfortunate use of the term sacrifice implies the giving, uh, the giving of something up that is of value to oneself for the benefit of another. <clears throat> Drop down a few sentences. Karev means to approach, to come near. And so to get into a close relationship with somebody. This at once most positively gives the idea of the object and purpose of the process of korban as the attainment of a higher sphere of life. The person desires that something of him or herself should come closer to God, and that's what korban is. So it's not just that I'm giving it to God. In giving a korban, I am achieving something I want, which is a, a higher state of connection to the divine. So in some ways, it's selfish. Not only is it not <clears throat> sacrificial, it's selfish. I achieve something that I attain something that I want by bringing that offering. Okay? So that's a whole different way to think and talk about the idea of uh, Korban. Wow. <laughs> I have a mother considered gift giving caused you to be obliged to other people. Ah. It was a burden. Ah, now, 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 that, that, we talked a, bit, a little bit about this last year. There is something to that, that when I give, there's also some insecurity about, will that gift be accepted? Right. So there's some nervousness about, is it going to be good enough? Her idea was that it obligated you to somebody, and so you didn't want any gifts to you. That, that is a very important part of gift giving. And there are some people that say that is also at the root of korban. What does that mean? Think about how chutzpah that is. What does that mean? What did I just say? If gift giving obligates the recipient to me, what is what happens with sacrifice in that system? In that God's going to be good to me. God owes me. Your mother's not wrong. There is an there is an obligation incurred whenever you receive a gift. I now owe the gift giver. Right. I mean, I don't think, right. you know, I owe Judy a whole, but, but you know, that's a different, <laughs> different kind of thing. Well, but, um, it's, tra- it's a transaction. It's a transaction, right? And so many cultures are built on gift giving as a way to obligate people to me. The most powerful person in the community is the one that gives the most gifts. Yes? Because now everyone's obligated to me. That is, that is how the economy works in some cultures. It's on what you give, because then you obligate the receiver. And so in that system, Korban draws God near because God owes me now. That's not right. That's not Yeah. That's not Yes. Well, what do you think happened in the ancient world? They were propitiating the gods. It's the only control you had. To bring more gifts. Yes, if I bring more gifts, I will be favored somehow. That is a very deep part of giving gifts. That seems so superficial and so 
But common. it's common. It's so human. I mean, it's so ingrained in us. It's very human. If I don't have control, I'm going to look to get control however I can. And what do you have the least control over? <laughs> the gods. They were whimsical. You could get a, you know, Zeus is mad at Hera, throws a thunderbolt, and what happens? You're just crossing the street to catch the bus. <laughs> After your massage at the massage place, right? And boom, you are obliterated because Zeus is having a fight, a domestic dispute, and you get schmeist. <laughs> that is paganism. Right? It's random. And so you are propitiating the gods all the time to try to make life bearable and to try to exert some control. It doesn't disappear because the Israelites become monotheistic. That doesn't just go away. Of course you want to influence God. Of course. We hear it so often, maybe, when someone's dying. If God will save this person, I will. Right? Whatever. Fill in the blank. Yeah. Hamsa. Hmm? Hamsa. The Hamsa. So, similar, it's a warding, right? Trying to save yourself. The Hamsa is a warding to, to ward against evil forces that, that are focused on you, right? So, yes, we're, we're always looking for some kind of control over that which feels chaotic and beyond our reach. I'm curious, is there a relationship between the difficult, if we're speaking about. So there's there's an ongoing tension, right, in that. God is as close as the next my next breath. I don't have to do anything. God is right here. Right? If I just shut up and sit down and get quiet, I'm close to the divine because I am the divine. And and I need to work at spiritual practice in such a way that I actually draw closer to my understanding that I am the divine. Right? So yes and yes. And there's a there's a tension there, right? Because it should be easy on the one hand. On the other hand, if if we're really practicing, it it requires effort and attention and and commitment and. But but at least what we've seen so far, sacrifices come after you've sinned, not because. Shlamim, not for shlamim, not the well-being offering. Sin is one category. So look on page two. Look on your next page. There are... Ow! There are... Section two. Go to section two. There are optional korbanot, and there are obligatory korbanot. Right? So what is the optional korban? The olah, right? The holocaust. The mincha offering, which is an offering of flour, and the shlamim. Those are optional offerings. You decide to bring those as an Israelite. What's not optional, the obligatory are chatat, when you realize that you have sinned, not on purpose, because if it's on purpose, what, what? If it's on purpose, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> if it's unintentional, then you bring a sacrifice to 
right, to cleanse, to deal with that. Um, and the asham, which is you, you have incurred a different kind of guilt. All right, which we can get into. Um, but so, so you have the uh, optional ones that are self-motivated and those that are uh, not optional. Because if, because if the chatat isn't brought, then the stain of sin remains in, in the camp if we're talking about the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which is what this is talking about, um, but later in the temple, then then that stain stays and the divine presence cannot dwell among the people. Right? So it has to be dealt with. That's why it's obligatory. You have to get rid of that. Right? That's the biggest danger possible is if we don't get rid of it. And if we don't get rid of it and the divine presence is not resting among the people, what's going to happen? Disaster. For sure. We will be conquered and our children carried off as slaves. That is what happened in the ancient world. It was always happening. It happened to Israel not so long after this. Right? The north is conquered and then the south falls. And it's gone. So that is what happened in the ancient Near East. People conquered other people and they took your stuff. And they took your wives and children. As slaves and converted them and carried them off, right? And they're gone. The Edomites are gone. The Jebusites are gone. They're all gone. We should be gone. We should be gone once the temple was destroyed and we were carried off. But we're not gone because we already had a bunch of folks reconstructing this into Shabbat and prayer taking the place of sacrifice. That was already happening and that's how we survived. Alright, that we created Judaism. Huh? Oh, Sheldon, really? Did you just, did you really just go there? Wow. Wow, okay. Alright then. Um, <laughs> right? He's, he's, he's brave. I'll give him that. Alright, so go to, <laughs> go to page three at the bottom right corner. That's going to take a bull to fix that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take a bull to fix that one. <laughs> um, what Rob Soloveitchik tells us, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm cutting to the chase here because we're out of time. Uh, I don't know how it happens, but we are once again out of time. What Rob Soloveitchik tells us is that sacrifices are not for the weak-hearted. He informs us that sacrifice should be a raw, startling event. They are meant to disturb they are designed to shake a person up and examine the very foundation of their existence on earth and their purpose on this planet. Korbanot begin a thought process of self-examination and self-scrutiny. By what right do I live? What drives the life force within me? When you confront life and death like that, right? it's supposed to leave the offerer asking the question, by what right am I getting up and walking out? It happens to me every single time I do a funeral or I leave the deathbed. By what right do I, Amy Bernstein, survive this? And what do I do with the fact that I escaped it this time? I didn't get the phone call that it's stage four. But Carrie Scott, who we buried yesterday, did. And is dead at 59. 
I am 53 next week. By what right do I walk away? That is what the korban is supposed to bring us to. It's not supposed to be clean. And it's not supposed to be easy. We've lost that. That's why I love this. Because we've lost that. We don't have... What shakes us up like that anymore? And where do we process that? What do we do with that? We're confronting it all the time. Like I just said, I, I confronted it all day yesterday. Um, but what do we do with that? Right? There's, there's, no, there's no ritual way that we channel that and confront it in a sacred right that leaves me feeling closer to the source of life. Right? We just walk around going a little sh- existentially shell-shocked mm-hmm. sometimes. Isn't that exactly the symbolism of Isaac's sacrifice? No. But that's another conversation. Um, No. He's not not sacrificed. No, he's not. But he almost is. Right, but he's not. The animal is. Right. So you have the sense of self identified with the animal. How is it that I'm surviving when the animal is dead? Oh, so yeah. Yeah, that's exactly... Yes, that's what sacrifice is based on. Yes. The, The victim... The victim dies and not me. And then what that does to Isaac, that's a whole nother. We'll talk about that when we get back to Rishi after Simple Torah. Because we've gone there before. We've gone there. That what it does to Isaac is not good. It essentially destroys him. Um, but that's, that's a great story. Um, so I just want to go to, uh, this, there's, there's a fabulous book, uh, called, uh, Leviticus, You Have No Idea. <laughs> That's the name of the book. That's the name of the book. Um, and it's fabulous. It's fabulous. So it's Maurice Harris. Um, and, and believe me, there's not a lot that's fabulous written about Leviticus. I got to tell you. I've looked. Right? Like I said, I've been doing this for 22 years. Um, and I was so excited when this book came out. I was so excited. So I just want to share a few of his words uh, to close. I know, <coughs> I know I have to let you go. The challenge is not for us to find a way to turn back the clock and re-embrace Leviticus's beliefs and rules for all of these areas of life, but rather for us to affirm what the authors of Leviticus noticed about life, namely that the daily embodied personal routines of life are imbued with sacred potential, meaning because they're talking about eating and all the things that Leviticus says you can do and can't do and how and in what measure. Um, people are like, oh my God, there's so many rules. But it's like what, what Maurice Harris is saying, because Leviticus gets it, that what we do is imbued with sacred potential all the time. Our task is to use the best insights and knowledge we have in our era to try to arrive at a set of values governing these aspects of our lives that affirm the sacred within us. Leviticus reminds us that freeing ourselves from the misjudgments of our ancestors in these areas is only part of the work. We still learn from Leviticus that these parts of our lives cry out for our attention. That, the, that our ancestors had a shared sense of values of the sacred in these areas of their lives. Uh, to some extent, the fact that we don't have that connection, he says, has opened the door to excess and amoral extremes. Mm-hmm. I think it is absolutely the truth. Right. Absolutely. Because we can eat whatever we want, we consume like crazy. There's no limits. Leviticus is saying, yes, you have an appetite. That's fine. Within limits, within reason. You want to have sex? 
terrific double points on Shabbos and holidays with your spouse and not your neighbor's spouse, right? It's not, your appetite isn't bad. Your appetite is fabulous. You should enjoy it and enjoy satisfying it within limits because you are an Amkadosh. You are a holy people. And that means you have to have rules about what's okay and what's off limits. Because if nothing's off limits, yeah. you can do anything. And I think twice. what we're dealing with, <laughs> twice, I think what we're dealing with right now in, in our culture is, where I see it, is consumption. It is out of control how much we consume. And we are destroying the planet. If, if that isn't a sacred obligation to protect all life on this planet, uh, I don't know what trumps that. But, right? So, like, I, I, we're going to struggle with Leviticus. I will own my struggles with Leviticus. Look at Leviticus 19. Nobody has more problems with that than gay people. So, we struggle with Leviticus. That's fine. We don't need to justify Leviticus. We just need to kind of understand how did they do it? What does that mean to us? But I think what we need to discuss as progressive Jews is where's the conversation about sacred limits? Where's that conversation? Right? We, we had a two-year process to come up with what our kashrut policy is here. That's great. Well, what about single-use water bottles? Right? Okay, we got, got rid of those. Right? But are we continuing that conversation? We just put in water bottle fillers, you'll see by the fountain, right? We're trying, we're, but we're not, we're not really taking very seriously, I don't think, and I include myself in this, in, in really exploring the sacred obligation to say no at some point. If you say that we're a holy people, does that differentiate us from other peoples? No. Other people have their way of being holy. I don't care about, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be flipped. I, no, no, no. That's not my interest. My interest is as Jews, we, to uh, live as an Am Kadosh, to live as a holy people, we need to be having certain conversations that we are not having. We need to be put, placing limits on ourselves that we're not discussing. Because we're so big on being free, right? We are free to do this, free to do that. And there's very little talk about freedom. We're talking about freedom from. We don't talk about freedom to, right, in terms of responsibility. Um, so I'm suggesting that we take this time of Leviticus, this season, uh, to, to really bring that to every chapter we read, right, to every parsha we read, to really bring that question forward. What that is in here, even if we don't like how they did it, what? Where's the conversation we need to be having on that theme, whatever it is, whatever Parsha we're in? So I'm going to ask you to help me do that and keep that conversation uh, happening as we make our way through Leviticus. Good Shabbos. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.